and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. All right, we'll get underway. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Project Echo. This is the West Vic PHN Hub COVID-19 Echo Network, Series 8, Session 2. Welcome back. It's Thursday, the 3rd of February, 2022. And this session we're calling Back to School, Balancing Public Health Measures and Personal Concerns. I'd like to begin by making acknowledgement to country and acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We um, pay our respects to elders past and present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual respect, understanding and reconciliation. And we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations. We'll work together on closing the gap. So American sociologist C. C. Wright Mills coined the phrase personal troubles, public issues, to describe twin-born problems that are inseparable and equally significant. As schools in Victoria reopen in the midst of a public health issue or pandemic, there will be no doubt a number of private troubles presenting to primary care. At the policy level, government departments will have been busy articulating guidelines describing a suite of risk mitigation measures. Schools will have been scrambling to implement these and provide rapid antigen testing kits to families ahead of return. And individual households across both states uh, of Victoria and New South Wales, families and staff members will be navigating complex risk-benefit calculations that will determine how they've felt and think about returning to these crowded settings at this stage of a pandemic. In this session, we'll seek to highlight the public health directives and guidance and untangle the personal issues and concerns uh, that will drive help seeking in primary care. We'll consider common scenarios that might be presenting and we'll be relying on you, our participants this morning, to share your experiences and questions in the chat so we can seek to resolve common issues presenting. What are the concerns of workers in educational facilities and what is our role in primary care in supporting these workers with vaccination certificates or exemptions with information and advice? What are the concerns of families and children? How can we best support them to balance the risk of harm from COVID versus the risk of harm from school exclusion? In whom at this time does COVID infection represent a significant risk? Actually, I I did pop that in where we're going to talk about immunocompromised, but we might actually hold that and carry that forward but I think it's worth just balancing that a little bit and who might we um, create special measures to shield from infection and in who might we play a role in supporting return to the business of education through information and tailored advice so what else needs to be considered at this time and what are we expecting to play out in the realms of public health and private issues so let's get underway I'm Bianca Forrester GP I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside Gemma and Fee Echo coordinators and thanks to Zach Hollow who again returns now as a second second year uh, resi um, writing notes for us so we're great so great to have Zach still with us he's been with us since he was a medical student participants welcome and thanks for introducing yourself in the chat welcome from out in the West Vic regions and thanks to any observers tuning in this morning we welcome you um, and uh, we are just going to quickly flag catch up content so we did a COVID care pathways series last uh, um, session and uh, last season or series if you like and you can go back and catch up on any of that content um you know what to do with the etiquette and i think you're pretty familiar oh yes i just want to flag the didactic sessions recorded so the video may be published and if you wanted to control um your presence on a video you can um switch camera off having said that we'd love you to all to have your video on i think at the stage of the pandemic um many of us are, are facing that sense of um feeling fairly isolated and maybe a little burnt out and seeing your lovely faces, I know for me, um, really brings me a lot of spirit each week. So um, love it if you can turn your video on and I'm sure your colleagues also do like that too. 
you've got our learning outcomes. And of course, this series, we're really swinging back to those SARS-CoV-2 infections, but there's so much else to consider around our vaccines um, ongoing and, um, and all of the other business of primary care. But we continue with our original aims. And thank you so much to our um, champions who've sent through case vignettes. I'd like to acknowledge that and pre-submitted questions. I'd like to remind everyone else that um, really your vignettes and cases are the backbone of ECHO. So thanks for um, getting them through to us. All right, so what have we got on the agenda today? Um, well, actually, I think, Gemma, maybe let's pull this slide because I think everyone would love to see our panellists' faces, or, except uh, I know actors having trouble with his camera, but um, in the spirit of that, welcome back, Kate Graham. Lovely to see you. And for everyone, I didn't tell Kate um, that we were doing Echo last week because you were having a well-deserved break, but I'm so glad you're back this week. So really nice to see you. Kate's our uh, COVID clinical advisor and COVID health pathways lead editor from the Westwick PHN, and she'll be bringing a guidelines update rat testing, Prezi, and uh, health pathways um, uh, guidance. Um, we welcome Dr. Akta Hussain, public health physician from Bowen Southwest Public Health Unit. Akta's going to give us a presentation this morning and apologies from Akta. His camera, uh, he's on a new laptop that's, um, the camera's not quite connecting in with our Zoom this morning, but uh, for many of us, we would have seen Akta's face last week and we'll certainly enjoy his presentation on return to school, the public health strategy and implementation considerations. Um, Jeff's coming. Um, oh, actually, we've got a case vignette by Nick Brayshaw. So thanks so much for bringing that, um, Nick. So Nick's going to come up with um, a really, really timely um, piece about a teacher uh, post-COVID returning to school. And then Jeff's going to bring us a, a presentation to think about some uh, elements of mild COVID um, complemented by a case vignette. So we've got a couple of great cases coming in. Um, Welcome, Jane Standish. We have paediatrician Jane Standish, who's um, here on panel. Jane's going to be, we're going to do two PEDS series uh, sessions uh, in the coming weeks. So it's great to have Jane join our conversation at this point. Jane's a paediatrician from Bowen Health, RCH. And um, I can't remember how to describe your affiliation with MCRI. You're a kind of, what would you say, Jane? It's like a... Uh, Honorary fellow, uh, just involved in the... Honorary um, fellow. Yeah, rotavirus vaccine research, primarily. Yeah, fantastic. And, and Jane's also lead of VIXIS, paediatric VIXIS for um, our region. So those vaccination, specialist immunisation service. Um, welcome to Naomi White. Where's Naomi? Give us a wave. Hi. Hi, there's Naomi White. So Naomi White, um, Naomi's, she's a paediatric ED nurse who's been working with the Grampians Public Health Unit, but that's not what brings her to panel this morning. She is the COVID Positive Care Pathways Manager for the West Vic PHN. So this is a new role that Naomi's been stepping into in the last um, few weeks and um, really mapping all the COVID Positive Care Pathways in our region. So she's also on panel this morning for our discussion. Thanks and welcome, Naomi. And if you need to get in touch with Naomi at any time about pathways, um, Naomi, I'm sure, is going to be delighted to hear from you. And, you know, Linda, she's going to bring the PHU up, a PHN update. All right. So with that, over to you, Kat Graham. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. And apologies for my lack of the echo background, but my computer is also having issues this morning. Um, I thought I'd run through a quick update of just where things stand at the moment. Uh, we've now moved on from sort of where we were standing last year to the pandemic orders. And so on the slides, when you get them, you'll have a link to the pandemic orders or you can just Google pandemic orders. And this is really where you find all the legal requirements um, that sort of really map out the roles of workplaces, roles of individuals, and what people have to do in terms of quarantine, isolation, testing, what makes up 
a true positive case, what makes up a, a probable case and what you need to do about it. Um, it's also the place where you find the case and contact management guidance and the testing guidelines. Um, they'll be in documents underneath the quarantine, isolation and testing orders. Interestingly, under all of these, um, orders, what you'll find is you'll find the Chief Health Officer's public health advice that's led to them, and you'll also find the human rights um, sort of issues around them. So that's the difference between the pandemic orders and what we were seeing last year. Um, so the mandatory vaccination orders are another one that's really relevant for uh, primary care um, as we move into the requirement for the third booster dose. Um, the visitors to hospitals and care facilities order is something to also keep an eye on in terms of who's allowed to visit. Um, Post-COVID, the regulation is that you must be cleared, but really importantly, they still maintain the definition between vaccinated and unvaccinated visitors for healthcare um, with unvaccinated visitors needing to have 14 days post-exposure. So I'll just move on to the next slide. So the quarantine isolation testing order that sort of goes through the confirmed case, probable case. Um, where we really want to look at is sort of how that then maps out to what we do with our pathway. So in terms of rapid antigen tests, which is really where I'm going to focus on a little bit more today, is that notification is mandatory. We need to notify um, as an individual or on behalf of an individual that we have guardianship for. We can also notify as a medical practitioner if we're asked to do so um, or if we have responsibility for somebody under our care. Um, and that's that online notification or for individuals who don't have online access notification through the COVID hotline. Um, then takes you through the isolation, notification of contacts. And this is really important because the uh, management has now moved towards individual notification of contacts rather than that sitting more um, so within the public health units. Then the clinical management, welfare management and clearance from isolation. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Contacts, what's changed really? Um, there's sort of, we've almost moved back to sort of where we were um, at the start of the pandemic with looking in general, particularly for the social contacts, um, where people think about things is the 15 minutes face-to-face -face or more than two hours in the same room. Workplaces, however, still have either the general workplace matrix or our own primary care and emergency services matrix. So within that, you still have your definitions of, um, exposure risk, and then that makes up what you do then for testing. Exemptions is what's really important. So you've got exemption from being a close contact for specific workers that allows you to return to work. This is something that must be agreed upon by the individual and by the workplace. Um, and that's only for the sort of those close contacts. Everyone else, if you've had an exposure in other settings, you'll be able to return back to work with negative rat testing. Um, so, and the other thing is that with exposures, um, um, if you've had positive COVID or you've had a COVID positive result, um, you are not required to do further testing and you are not required to isolate if you have been exposed for 30 days 
Currently, as the guidance sits online, it's 30 days from your test result. Very soon, it's going to move from to 30 days from your clearance from isolation with the next um, iteration of the pandemic orders. So with rapid antigen testing, because this is where everyone's world's at, I've done two tests in my household this morning. I think many of you will have also been doing tests all week. Um, what we want to really sort of think about is where we use it and how we use it best. So what I like to think of it as that's sort of really helped me get my head around sort of how we use it is when we're using it really as a confirmatory test. Um, so, and when it when the result means that you're treating things as a probable case. So when you have epidemiology, so if you've got epidemiological risk as a contact, either a close contact or a social case um, contact or workplace contact, then you're really treating things as a confirmatory test. And that's regardless of um, whether you have symptoms present or if you're asymptomatic. Anyone with symptoms, rapid antigen testing is treated as a confirmatory test and there's no need to follow up on PCR. So with these little um, sort of trees of diagnostic decision-making, um, really all it is, is that you're going through, if you're rat positive with symptoms, if you're rat positive with epidemiology, you're treating it as a probable case. If you're rat negative and you have symptoms, that's where a lot of people have been getting a bit more confused. We want people to continue to isolate and manage their symptoms and either repeat rat tests or if they don't have access to further rat tests, um, getting a PCR test. Because we know that rat tests aren't perfect. Um, there are anecdotal sort of um, things where people are getting negative rats sort of in the first couple of days of the illness and then becoming quite positive on their rat tests a little bit later on. So that's something that's really important to sort of drill into people that if they're symptomatic, you stay home until your symptoms have settled. Um, so I think the other thing is that the contact management of what you do once you've been a contact, if you're asymptomatic, that's going to really depend on what your type of exposure is. Again, I'd refer everyone to sort of the checklists for um, cases and contacts on the department website. That's really good to help people figure out what they need to do in terms of what testing they need to do to return to work, um, all those kind of things. And for primary care, we just keep referring back to the workplace matrix for that one. So I'll just go on to the next slide. Where there's a bit more confusion and particularly now that we're using screening um, more widely, so now that it's come into schools, we're using it in a lot more workplaces. This is where you don't have any clear epidemiology. You're not a close contact. You don't have any other contacts. You don't have symptoms. Um, and it's difficult because the department website does have some conflicting information in places. So this is where I really do want to make sure that it's clear is that if you are rat positive and you don't have any epidemiology, don't have any symptoms, obtain a PCR to confirm the diagnosis, um, but isolate while you're waiting for that PCR test. This is to really exclude the false positives. And that's going to be more important as cases drop. 
um, that more of the sort of rat positives in asymptomatic people will become um, we will get more false positives. And just when you're testing so many people across the population, you will come up with some false positives just because the nature of all of these tests are not perfect. Um, so definitely when you have the rat test positive still, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything if you're asymptomatic and you have epidemiology. You still go through all the process. You still put in the notification online or through the phone uh, number, you still notify your contacts. You do all of this while awaiting PCR confirmation. We know that PCRs are taking a lot less time to come back. So hopefully the process is pretty quick, um, but that's really where we want to make sure. Um, so tips and tricks for rapid antigen testing. Um, because I've had to do a lot of these on my kids over the last couple of weeks or a few weeks due to various exposures and bits and pieces. Um, one of the key things that we want people to remember, particularly over summer, is that the temperature of storage is really important and can affect the accuracy of the tech test. So two to 30 degrees, don't keep it in the fridge um, at home because um, home refrigerator temperatures aren't um, really that um, clear and can freeze things. So definitely freezing tests is bad. Um, reading each pack carefully, I've used probably four different types of rapid antigen tests now, and all of them have different timings, all of them have different procedures, all of them have different advice as to how many times you should go around the nostril or how many seconds you should go around it. Um, and I think this is something to sort of keep an eye on for patients, particularly those with low health literacy, low English literacy. The forms that come out with them are really complex. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday that the fact that diluent is not a common word in normal English language. Um, and so there are words like that on the um, instructions. So there is a likelihood that people could make mistakes and the pictures are quite small and difficult to figure out. Using a timer, because it's very easy to get distracted within 15 minutes, particularly if you're doing a lot. Um, remembering the anatomy again and going sort of more horizontally rather than sort of vertically up the nose. Getting kids to do their own um, is really useful, particularly when you're going to need to be doing lots of these over time. That doesn't mean that they need to be doing the dropper onto the um, little test cartridge or anything like that, but just putting them in control of that nasal swab technique um, just takes some of the fear away from it. And they can get really good specimens now. And my four-year-old has been crying when the two big boys get to do their tests and he doesn't get to do one. So this is a big change from when he used to fight having to do anything related to testing previously. So we've got the public health unit contacts on there. I'll just quickly go on to the next slide so that we get through all of this to get through to our speakers. Vaccine differences. We've had a whole lot of stuff come out over the past few weeks. Um, five to 11 year olds, the third doses for the immunocompromised is really key. Shortened interval for high medical risk in certain circumstances. So anywhere between that three to eight weeks is fine. Um, so 12 to 16 year olds, the third dose advice um, is still pending. Um, the 
16 to 17 year olds. We're still awaiting the formal ATAGI guidance. Greg Hunt yesterday said that ATAGI has approved, but ATAGI approval usually oh, comes. Linda's with- got it. It's come through the provider bulletin. Fantastic. Good. I haven't had a chance to check due to my other computer dying. That was one of my jobs for this morning after seeing that. So that's excellent news. So we can now book everyone in happily. Um, Novavax coming out is going to add a bit more complexity into the vaccine choices. And so making sure that you're doing the Novavax training online. Um, Worker vaccination requirements, the link in there. um, does have the third dose dates and the information in there for sort of when people will be due. Exemption letter considerations, um, the post-COVID timing, Atagi has reduced their sort of clearance for for the six months post-acute illness down to four months. Um, I know that Barwon, I think, was doing, was sort of advising people that eight weeks after um, vaccination I mean, after acute infection was a time to delay vaccination um, when waiting for a booster dose. So um, all of those things are there for you as well with all of these resources. So I think that was probably positive care pathways are still coming up. Um, yeah, so still... Kate, I just wanted to quickly highlight this. Um, sorry to interrupt, mm. but um, I guess I just wanted to kind of just finally put one more cap on this. I know last series we spent a lot of time on these positive care pathways, but I just wanted to make sure that's a term everyone's familiar with. So when we talk about positive care pathways, that's basically that someone has COVID, they've notified it if it's a rat or the lab's notified it if it's a PCR. Notifications received by VicDH from the lab or from patient self-notification or as you say, someone doing it on a patient's behalf, that's then sent out or the patient receives a message from um, VicDH um, and there's a, we can talk about more this in, down the track, but they'll get a survey um, and the VicDH then will allocate that to their local public health unit. They receive that notification, contacts the patient regarding their public health orders and clearance and then um, sends that through to either the PHU associated uh, health service. So then the health service uh, Bowen or Ballarat or, you know, the various smaller health services then conduct the risk stratification and clinical assessment and determines which pathway the patient's placed on. So VicDH allocates to self-care, but then the rest of it's sorted out from low, medium, clinically stable, at risk of deterioration and then high. So the, um, the health services allocate to pathways and then the patient's on a pathway. Now that's a kind of an official process that relies on notification to be on a positive COVID care pathway. If someone just comes to you with symptoms they're not, and they haven't notified, you're just managing those symptoms. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that so that we all have that positive COVID care pathway um, kind of, you know, understanding. And when we refer to them, that's this is the path, this is the um, stratification or the criteria for the pathway. And there's a broader pathway that does highlight all those steps. But all of the information kind of related to how they're clinically determined, I guess, fall under some of the resources we've provided here. And Kate, did you want to talk about, um, you know, how how the health pathways relate to, um, you know, this kind of formal pathway? So I think like um, where general practice kind of sits in, it's we generally sit in and supporting the sort of self-care and low level care. However, um, what we want to make sure of is that our patients aren't moving into the sort of medium or high risk. And the health pathways um, that we have 
are there to support um, GPs in decision-making, um, providing the links and providing the contact points uh, for GPs to be able to sort of see, okay, if my patient's moving into a different level on this pathway, then who do I contact? Um, or these are the things that would prompt me to think, okay, this patient needs um, some of the medical treatments for COVID. Um, because there are people who will fall through the cracks who may not have been triaged, who may not have notified themselves, who may just come in and say to your hat or phone up and say, hey, I've had a positive rat. And they may have the rat but don't know the process then for notification online. So all of these things have been happening more since we've had the rat test part of the process. So um, I think check it out. Health Pathways is under a bit of an update this week due to all the things that I have to catch up on after being away from leave. Uh, but we've got all the COVID care support and referral information here, which is really important to take down these numbers because that's where you're going to get that really key clinical support. Yeah, great. And I just want to highlight that um, last week we had um, both GPLU from um, Barwon and Ballarat describe to us the Pathways phone numbers. And I really just want to, again, highlight to everyone um, you know, while I think it's a little confusing because it's different in every area, what happens. So when we're thinking about care and support, we're now talking about health services. We're not talking about the public health units. So don't call the public health units for COVID care and support and citrovimab infusions. Even though at Barwon that is managed under public health unit at Ballarat, it's managed by the health service. So I just want to quickly make that distinction. So what I'm going to do going forward for ECHO is I think it does make it confusing if we try to speak to each individual region, but health pathways um, is going to be your point of call. So if you're thinking about what's happening in my area, health pathways is the place to go. And Naomi White will be working very closely with the health pathways crew to make sure that everything she's mapping is required recorded on health pathways um, but just to make that distinction that, um, that that when we talk about COVID care um, you know there's a separate realm of a group of phone numbers to be aware of. Great and I just wanted okay. to flag that Akhtar in the um, chat has now said that Bowen has changed um, to advise booster as soon as possible after recovery from the infection which is okay. good. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. So, Kate, I think there's a couple of questions, if you don't mind scooping them up in the chat, but we'll hang, hand over to you now, Acta, for um, presentation on back-to-school guidelines. Thanks. Thanks, Kate. Thank you, Bianca. Thanks, Kate. That's my wonderful presentation. And I was thinking that whether there will be any overlap or not in terms of what you are talking and what I'm going to discuss. I don't think we have a lot of, I have a lot of content um, considering that it only start, came to us uh, only on Monday, three, in the weekend and with the busy things, I couldn't prepare slides. But uh, I think most of us have, have kids and, or if not, then they have someone who, someone who has kids and they are going to school. They have already might, uh, I don't know, many of you might have received already letters from principal saying that they have an exposure I have already received. so. Um, it's only second day, third day yesterday. So it's really something that we are looking forward to in next three to four months, for three to four weeks time, how the numbers are going up. We have started seeing a increasing trend since last week with the number of cases in particularly in zero to four years and then five to 11 years um, in last two weeks considering that their childcare services or early childhood centers have already started a couple of weeks before. So we have already said that trend is already visible. It's worth 
um, keeping an eye what's happening in next uh, two to three weeks time and whether the the um, the strategy that currently um, department is uh, following whether that's going to work and we don't need to change any change anything going forward from uh, from fifth week onwards or we might need to tweak things to see and uh, to have some sort of effect or um it, or reduce the number not sure what it's going to be so back to school program in victoria is basically is based on three three basic principles which is ventilation vaccination and having a a vital COVID safe plan for all the schools. So um, Kate just discussed that touch up on the vac vaccination. So we, we do have now five to 11 year uh, kids um, slots available and they are getting vaccinated. Good to know that in last, I think until last week, we have around 33 to 35% of population in five to 11 years in our area, Bowen Health. Uh, they have their first dose. And uh, and waiting for their second one, and there are further recommendations for my tag. He came, I think, the week before about the high risk uh, conditions for kids who can go and get their second jab in three weeks time interval. But there is uh, which is making a bit of problem at the moment uh, with with the time slots, and so GPs are encouraged to take that opportunity as well and provide. Uh, vaccination if there is an early need or if there is a need they don't have vaccines they can always uh, refer them to Bowen Health or, or I think probably respect team in the Grampians as well for consideration for an early vaccination so that's from a vaccine point of view and then we have uh, in terms of um, the rapid kit distribution so we have now free rapid antigen testing kids available to all the kids and the staff in the school. So around more than 14 million rapid antigen kits have already been delivered across the state and to also some of the early childhood education care setting where staff are receiving their rapid antigen test. But in terms of um, kids, or the, uh, they have to collect uh, from the state-owned side. Um, uh, the recommendation is it's not a, it's, it's, is that there should be twice weekly voluntary testing at home for primary and secondary students and staff, whereas someone who is going to a, um, a specialist school, uh, uh, staff and student, they should be doing five, or the recommendation is they should be doing five weekly and uh, five times weekly voluntary testing. Um, there are enhanced support for uh, for ventilation, keep, um, HEPA filters have been distributed across uh, schools, which is really good. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, COVID safe plan, each schools have their COVID safe plan to implement to stay up if there are in case there are um, any outbreaks. And it's mainly the outbreaks are responsible management. These responsibilities for the individual schools, and they are directly contacting the Department of Education. Um, I know uh, um, Rosemary is online as well. So please jump in, Rosemary, if there are anything that is different or um, if, if you want to add in any time, please. Um, so that in terms of uh, provision of rapid antigen test uh, and uh, it's just a trial mode for the first, two, first four weeks to see how things are working. 
and uh, and then will be the next step what it is going to be um and then it's a in terms of distribution there are specific uh, guidelines are already been in place for the schools how to distribute that and in terms of packs and uh, to to students and staff and it's uh, it's parents responsibility if someone if they are testing and they are coming if the tests are positive they need to report uh, into you can see rosemary has raised her hands Thanks, Hector. Rosemary, hi. Good morning. Um, thanks very much, Bianca. Thanks, Hector. Just a couple of things is that, um, in general, the Department of Education and Training has taken responsibility for the whole state in terms of distribution, providing advice to schools and early child care, uh, education and care centres. They have done an extraordinary job logistically and um, have provided um, you know, quite detailed advice. Uh, what we've found in terms of the public health unit's support for schools is that schools will reach out. We've got great relationships, as I'm sure is in the case in Barwon with the uh, regional directors of uh, public education. We've also reached out to the independent schools and the Catholic diocese in our um, Grampians region. And um, in particular with the independent and Catholic schools, we have three boarding schools in our region. So we've had um, particular meetings with the principals and senior officers in, who are responsible for those boarding schools. We've got about 500 boarding students in the Grampians region who come from interstate as far as away as the furthest part of Western Australia. Um, and uh, clearly um, sending somebody home when they test rapid antigen positive is not necessarily a straightforward thing. So we've been working particularly closely with the principals around essentially the household contacts that might be the case through spread at school. And the other thing we've found is that for teachers and for students, um, very likely uh, getting becoming COVID positive is, is, is less likely to happen at school than in their social contacts. And when we are talking with um, students and teachers, if we do, just like with anyone else um, in a workplace setting, we also ask about the nature of their uh, contacts with work colleagues, but in social or household contacts as well, so that we can be making sure we're getting a full picture. So take home message is that our boarding school students are in safe hands. And uh, certainly in the Grampians region, we've got a, a, a strong working relationship with those boarding schools so they can reach out to us on our phone numbers at any time, should they have complex situations they're trying to work through. All right, thanks, yes. Rosemary. Yeah, same as uh, we have already in the process of setting up meetings with the uh, with the public school as well as uh, Catholic and private schools with with principals. Hopefully next week, and and continue doing that to understand what's happening and whether there are support need needed and at what stage, so that we are as um, as Rosemary mentioned that with the regional directors, we have a good relationship. So we are just trying to capitalize on that and continue that relationship. Uh, in, even if uh, Department of Education has done a great deal of work in establishing the whole process uh, for managing um, the, the outbreaks within the school uh, premises. And it's quite important was Rosemary mentioned that it's mainly the exposures and transmissions happen at a household level rather than at the school. So keeping a close eye on that too is quite quite important. Um, in terms of where the roles of GPs are at the moment, so uh, as a GP, the most important thing is to understand where their clients are. If there are kids who are immunosuppromised or there there is need to plan their treatment, or if they are at high risk, it's it's mainly talking to their parents and. Uh, 
and providing additional advice or guidelines and doing a risk benefit analysis of where it is possible if if kids are supposed to going and what sort of mitigation strategy they might be uh, adopting at, at in, within school and uh, wearing of masks, whether it's possible or not. That's a, with kids, it's a different issue, which probably um, is not a point of discussion at the moment, but definitely we can advise all those uh, mitigation strategies, uh, how we can do that. And yeah, I can see that's uh, even a compromise accepted definitions uh, in there. And that's the definition that came out in from ATAGI about the vaccination, but that equally effective for uh, kids for ending into complications with infection if, if they have infection. So we just need to be careful with, with those clients and uh, providing necessary advice. Mm, yeah, thanks, yeah. actor. So I just wanted to check that with you because I went looking for, you know, how what what GPs might use as a guide when someone says they're worried about immunocompromised. So are you happy that this this is a reference for us in terms of who might need to be shielded or we might need to t- take special precautions? So these are these are the medications that we are looking for. Yes, definitely, and there are treatments just kids which are like malignancies and other thing. I think we can use this uh, as a reference for those who are at higher risk. Yeah, great. Now, I think, and actually, Jane, I'm glad you're here because I think we will probably carry on this conversation a bit next week. No doubt there'll be lots of questions about um, how this relates to kids around um, advancing those three those boosters Jessica mentioned in the chat. You know, who in whom are we um, trying to bring those booster intervals or the, sorry, the dosing intervals forward for the 5 to 11s? Um, who are we considering those boosters in uh, the 16 to 17s? And, oh, sorry, no, they all get it now anyway. Um, and um, so we can think about that. That, but also think about who might need to be shielded. So we can bring that forward. Um, now, Acto, I think we've got a case presentation. Are you happy for us to put that up? Yes, I think that would be better to answer any queries if there are. Thank you. Great. Nick Brayshaw, welcome. Did you want to present this? Uh, morning, Bianca. Um, Good morning. Fine. Thank you. Um, so this is a case of a 52-year-old uh, school teacher uh, who's also provides care to her frail elderly parents who live in a separate dwelling. Um, and she's uh, day seven since having uh, COVID, a positive uh, PCR and the onset of symptoms. And she's feeling much better, but she still has a moist cough and, and, and some fatigue uh, and says, estimates she's probably only 75% better. Um, she's double vaxxed and has no significant comorbidities. Uh, so her three, she has three questions, really. One, one is her employer seems to expect her to return to work on day eight um, tomorrow. Is this uh, safe and reasonable uh, for her to do? Um, She's concerned as to when she can feel confident that she's safe to uh, resume visiting her her, uh, vulnerable parents. Um, and, And I'm also interested to ask the question, if her cough persists for several weeks, uh, at what point in time can she uh, actually reassure people around her that she's no longer contagious? Great. Thanks, Nick. So this is, we're going to make this a rapid echo. So when we do echo, normally we say, we ask you to provide us some clarifying questions. I want you to think of what other information do you want to hear from Nick to help you answer um, these questions? So just a quick one. Does anyone want to know anything more about this teacher, her parents, her environment, her cough? Any misinformation? So that's the clarifying questions around. How do we think about this? Nick, can I ask whether this person, a school teacher, has got any uh, additional comorbidities or in terms of immunocompromised? 
compromised it or you mean the, the school teacher um, do, doesn't have any comorbidities. Uh, yeah. she's, she's otherwise healthy. Her, her parents, though, are vulnerable. Yeah. yeah that's and thanks, Hector. Can I ask you to explain to the group um, what would you what would change your thinking here? Are there a group? Yes. Which group might our advice be different for? Yeah. So particularly, we are ask, um, advising that the day seven after that, uh, someone can I come out of your isolation. And if someone is persist, uh, have persistent symptoms, should continue to isolate for a couple of more days until the acute symptoms have resolved. And uh, and then they can come out of uh, isolation from in the, in, or you can start going to sensitive setting. But in terms of going, and I can see that it's a school, so that's a sensitive setting, you can say, and it would be better to just uh, keep on isolating for a couple of more days once the acute symptoms have subsided and then they can and start feeling much better. Um, that's one thing, even for the hospital setting, when we have this sort of scenario, we are advising that patients can be discharged on day 10 if there are symptoms, uh, a little bit of symptoms, that's fine. We don't consider them infectious at that point of time. So it, it would be absolutely okay. And if, if symptoms still persist and person is immunocompromised, then we probably might need to consider that there is there might be a uh, longer uh, period of infectiousness and then need to isolate for a couple of more days, which may be for 14 days or 20 days as well, uh, depending upon what's the status are. But in this particular case, Vinet, I can I can say that probably isolating for maybe 10 days, probably he might, he might start feeling better and then can resume work and can kind of visit parents as well. So uh, schools considered a sensitive setting. So firstly, that's a piece that I don't think I was probably thinking of. I was thinking of sensitive settings as, um, say, disability care settings. And I was curious to find out, did her parents live alone or were they in a residential aged care facility? So I was considering that a sensitive setting. But um, it's good for us to think about schools as a sensitive setting. So that provides extra backup to that employer that it's a sensitive setting and therefore that 10-day yeah, we piece. know it, we have lots of kids who are... Uh, who need special care in the certain circumstances. We know kids, there are implications. If kids are getting infected, the more is that they will take infection to family. And then there are further, as Rosemary mentioned, there are more likely of transmission happening at the household level. So certain times you might need to, and it depends from case to case and how you are going to. But even after day seven, if someone is coming out, they can go and work. There are uh, PPEs available at the school uh, level as well, where they can use N95 masks and other things, and they can continue to work in terms of if there are issues. And we do not have staff and any the part of uh, essential worker. That's always uh, possible. And can I ask when you mentioned when you asked the question about comorbidities or immunocompromised, is there a agreed um, list of um, conditions in which you would actually recommend a longer? Um, isolation period for someone with COVID? No, not necessarily. It's the same as certain treatments when it makes people immunocompromised or under medication, recent cancers, and they're getting cancer treatments and all those. Yeah. So then, Nick, I'm thinking for yourself, you know, what she really wants to know, when would it be safe and I'm no longer infectious going forward? Um, you know, actor, I guess uh, the seven days, is it, you know, so is it in... in immunocompetent individuals, uh, we are able to be reasonably reassuring once symptoms have cleared, but in immunocompromised individuals, less reassuring and perhaps need that extra bit of time? 
Yes, that's my understanding as well. And that's what evidence is. I, I think, Rosemary, do you want to add anything on this? Or do you take it in a different approach? Uh, no, you. very similar. Um, when we're uh, in the public health unit, when we ask these questions that we can't answer routinely, we usually defer to our infectious diseases colleagues. That's one thing. And secondly, uh, as a general principle, clearly there's two issues going on here. One is whether she's COVID infectious. And the second is how well she feels enough to go back to work. So that's actually the clinical decision for me is for the GP to determine because we don't want somebody going back to work because they feel pressured to do so. They need to be facing and well able to manage uh, what they may be confronting given the environment in which to it they're going. So for my view, I agree with Akhtar that we routinely believe that a person is no longer infectious after seven days. But for me, the second issue is how well they are um, to then uh, um, go back to work. Uh, the third thing is, as you suggested, the environment in which they're frail, elderly parents, and the whole way through Omicron, we're having to make judgments about competing risks, especially, for example, in residential aged care facilities. The harms that could come from control, or in this case, the harms that can come from excluding somebody from caring for their frail, elderly parents, versus the risk those frail, elderly parents might actually have from COVID if they're triple boosted, which is quite low. So it's about that judgment also. Thank you, Rosemary. I want to acknowledge that, yeah, and I also mentioned are there other people who can care for frail elderly parents and um, the question about who else is in the household with her. So there's a lot to think about, GPs, and I mean, I don't want to linger any longer on this case because I want to get on to Jeff's case, but um, Nick, does that feel like it's kind of, um, uh, thank you so much for bringing forward this case. Have we covered the elements that you were thinking of? Uh, yes, we have. Thank you all. That was a helpful discussion. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Nick. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Nick. And thanks, Actor and Rosemary. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Over to you, Linda. And um, Jane, thanks for throwing in that nice little curly one and um, about PIMS, um, and we'll be talking about that next week. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Uh, is my volume all right today? Yep. Yep. Good morning, everybody. So a one-minute update from me. So from uh, Aged Care, we've got Aspen still providing uh, boosters and they're being really um, supportive of that. So if you if you feel like there's a RACF that you're visiting that needs um, booster, a booster visit, just let us know. In Ballarat, there's also a Commonwealth Vaccination Hub that's been set up next week. It's for aged care disability and childcare workers. Uh, again, we've got some comms going out about that. The provider bulletin, it's just arrived in our inbox this morning, so we'll get that out to you this morning, but it has the updated information around um, the Atagi guidelines for the Pfizer booster for 16 and 17-year-olds, so that's good news. Novavax, we expect to hear, it says later this week, so I guess Friday tomorrow about 5pm, we'll hear the practices that will be onboarded for Novavax. In our region, we've had overall 29 EOIs, um, 16 in the Barwon Southwest region, 13 in the Grampians. Within that, there's eight in Ballarat. So hopefully we'll have some good news for those practices by the end of tomorrow. Uh, next slide, thanks. Um, just with our 5 to 11 vaccination rates, you can see there we've got um, almost 50% coverage across the whole region. We do have a couple of areas with lower rates, um, but we do have some uh, well really proactive um, support from the public health units in in targeting those areas as well as um, some active general practices in those regions as well and we've also just received information this or late last night from the victorian state government um, for the schools vaccination in schools grant which was yeah a state government uh, um, 
grant project, whatever. It's um, so we've got eleven schools in our region that'll be targeted as well, and a couple in those lower areas. So there are some activities happening there. There's a um, some good digital collateral there from the from the state government. Um, it's a, a video if you have, want to have a look at that for the five to eleven year olds, and. I think, last slide there, Kate's already mentioned this, but just a reminder for the Commonwealth vaccination training, lots of updated modules there to, to, um, to do. So that's, that is it. Thank you, Bianca. Thanks, Linda. Um, thanks to Nick and Jeff for bringing cases and Jeff for bringing um, a presentation. Um, please, please, please do send us vignettes. As you probably experienced today, it really does make it um, relevant to us, particularly with our practical nature of our work when cases are brought forward. So, um, oh, and team, what are we doing with Nick for sending in a case? What, trip to Hamilton Island or um, dinner for two? I don't know if we've quite got that in the budget. Maybe a coffee voucher. So um, next week we'll tell you what what, what we're doing with uh, for people who, to love up people who send in cases. Um, so do scan the evaluation. Uh, let us know what more you want to hear about. Next week, we're going to bring Jane Standish um, uh, forward to talk about all complicated paediatric things and uh, and vaccine questions. We'll get more into immunosuppression. I know there's quite a few questions in the chat about that as well. So hopefully we'll highlight some of that next week. Um, so thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Good luck out there. And we'll see you uh, next week. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.